John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to have the opportunity this morning to hear from you through your perfect and holy word. Lord, we pray that you would remove all distractions, help our minds to focus on what you are saying to us this morning. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us with the gospel and change us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, great events usually produce different reactions among different people. Think about when the election results finally come in. There are different reactions from different people. 
right? One party celebrates, and they begin implementing their agenda. And then the losing party declares the election process is rigged and begins derailing the new administration. Great events generally produce different reactions among different people. And in the first part of John chapter 11, we have this great event, right? Jesus's friend, Lazarus, dies. He was stone cold dead for four days. And yet Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and commands him to come out. And this man who had been dead for four days comes walking out in his burial clothes. Jesus has the power to raise the dead and bring them back to life. We saw last week that this was a sign that pointed to the fact that Jesus can take people who are spiritually dead and give them spiritual life. Jesus has shown his amazing power in raising Lazarus from the dead. And now in our passage this morning, we see different responses, different responses to who Jesus is and what he has done. And not all the responses were positive, which is kind of crazy if you think of it. I mean, most of us would assume that if we saw someone and people around us saw someone go from being dead to then being alive, that everybody would believe in the guy who commanded that guy to live. But that's not what happened. We see contrasting responses to Jesus. People are either trying to kill him or show their complete devotion to him. For those of you who are taking notes this morning, we see three different groups in our text. We see the hardened, we see the humble, and we see the hypocrite. We see the hardened, the humble, and the hypocrite. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text, is this. Because Jesus died for us, we should respond with belief and humble devotion. Because Jesus died for us, we should respond with belief and humble devotion. In verse 45, we see that many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. The purpose of this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was not to wow the people. It was so that people would believe. The purpose of Jesus's signs were to point to who he is and what he has come to do so that people would believe in him. Jesus performed these miracles so that people would believe in him. Think about the first sign that we saw in the Gospel of John. Jesus changes the water into wine. And then John records that the signs showed Jesus' glory and the disciples believed in him. That's the end goal. That's the point of all these signs. And as we read in our texts, we see that many of the Jews, they saw this sign, they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they believed in him. And John makes sure to note 
that it was the Jews who had come with Mary. If they had not come to comfort Mary when she was grieving the loss of her brother, they wouldn't have seen this miracle. And they wouldn't have been saved. One commentator says, they had come as the merciful, but they obtained mercy. Some of the Jews believed, but others were tattletales. And this leads to our first group, the hardened. The miracle itself was not enough for people to believe. We're reminded here of the wickedness of our hearts by nature. This amazing miracle had just occurred right before their eyes. A man who was dead was now raised to life. And instead of falling flat on their faces and worshiping Jesus for who he is, they leave and go share the news with the enemy. Do you remember the parable that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke with the rich man and the beggar Lazarus, different Lazarus? Remember, they both die. The beggar Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. And the rich man sees Abraham from afar. And he asks Abraham to send somebody back to his brothers and warn them so that they would not go to that place of torment. And what, what does Abraham say? No. Even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. We sometimes wonder how people we know who have heard the gospel can continue in their unbelief. And as we consider some of the Jews and the Pharisees and the chief priests in this text, we're reminded of how deeply rooted the sin of unbelief can be. It's a condition that can only be cured by the saving grace of God. And we see here that the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead doesn't cause them to believe. In fact, it produces a response to go and tattletale to the religious leaders. Their hearts were hardened. And the leaders, instead of saying, maybe this is the Messiah, maybe this is the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about, maybe this is the long-awaited seed of the woman. Instead, they say, let's hold a meeting with the chief priests. And no doubt, this, this meeting started in prayer to God. And yet the purpose of it was to oppose Jesus, the Son of God. They hold this meeting and they say in verse 47, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They knew that Jesus had performed these signs. There was no question. Even the enemies of Jesus confirmed that he did these miracles. Many signs. There are some unbelieving, skeptical people today who will question whether Jesus did these signs or not. And yet those who oppose Jesus, when Jesus walked this earth, for them there was no question whether he did these signs or not. But notice the response. They knew that Jesus could heal people. They knew that he could raise people from the dead. But they say to each other, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, that's kind of funny, right? If we let him go on like this, since they, they apparently think they have power over Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As you can imagine, Lazarus's resurrection made the leaders a little nervous. Kent Hughes writes, anytime your star witness is a resurrected corpse, you have a pretty good case. And notice that this is the Pharisees and chief priests talking to each other. The majority of the chief priests were the Sadducees. These two groups hated each other. But in this instance, they come together because their hatred of Jesus was more than the hatred that they had for one another. The religious leaders in Israel had many sins. We've seen in the Gospel of Luke, that they were lovers of money. And here in the Gospel of John, we see that they were lovers of power. What was it that prevented these religious leaders from believing in Jesus? What was it to cause them to get to the point to want to kill Jesus? It was their love of power and control. Their hearts were hardened and blinded by their sin. These guys were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people, but they were in it for their own power. So they did everything they could do to have more control because of their desire for power. Rather than caring for the needs of others, they're only concerned for themselves. And there's no appeal to the truth at all in this passage. They were only concerned about politics, position, and power. And they're fearful of the Romans. And yet they had the opportunity to believe in a leader who could free them from Rome if they only considered his power. He had given sight to a man born blind, and he had raised a man from the dead. And they feared the Romans. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, when men lose piety, they lose their courage. These men weren't seeking God. Because if they were, they would have seen Jesus for who he is. They would have trusted God to keep them safe. But instead, they fear man. So they gathered around at this council, and they're trying to assess the situation. Then notice verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. These leaders are looking for a solution, and then Caiaphas speaks up. And he's like, Y'all are dummies. You know nothing at all kind of rude, right? And, and then he says, the solution is simple. We need to kill Jesus. We need to kill him. It's best if he dies rather than the nation. But think about this. Here is the one who is standing in the very position that God had appointed. the place that God had put Aaron into in the days of Moses. This is the high priest, the one who is supposed to be making atonement for the people on the day of atonement. 
This is the one who gets to go into the most holy place and bring the blood of the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The one who represents the people before God. And from him comes the idea, let's kill Jesus to save our power and to save our nation. Let's kill the only innocent man that has ever lived. Here we see the length that people will go when they hate Christ. This is the highest religious office in Israel. And from that man comes the sinful idea, let's kill the Son of God. But John also mentions in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Here comes the most hateful, wicked response to Christ. Let's get rid of him for the sake of the people. And John says that while Caiaphas is saying these words, God, the infinite God, is sovereign over Caiaphas's words and turns them into a prophetic utterance of the gospel. As Caiaphas spoke, God also spoke. What Caiaphas says points to the cross where Jesus will die for us. It is better for one to die than you to perish. That's true. What he's saying is true when it's understood in a spiritual sense. It is better for Christ to die than for you to perish in your sins. One of the key words in Caiaphas's statement here is the word for. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. The prophecy here points to what Christ did on the cross. Jesus's death was for in the place of his people. His death was a death for others and not for himself. Jesus went to the cross taking our place. He died instead of us. He took the guilt and punishment for our sins. He died as a substitute. Caiaphas basically comes up with the best summary statement for the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. We see this in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason why one man should die for the people is not to spare them from the Romans, but it's to spare them from the wrath of God. All of us are sinners, and all of us are in need of a Savior. And it's better for you that one man should die than for you to perish in your sins. 
In this gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Caiaphas is only thinking on a political level. He doesn't know what his words mean. All he wants to do is to kill Jesus. But God can take the greatest evil scheming of man and turn it into something good for his people. And he has done that. Amen? And then in verse 53, John writes, And so from that day, they made plans to put him to death. In a matter of days, Jesus would be nailed to the cross and die for the sins of those who believe in him. And so as we consider our own reaction to Jesus, are you like the religious leaders that we see here in this passage? Trying to get rid of Jesus or opposing him because he is a threat to the life that you want to live. Remember the words of Jesus just a couple chapters before. He says, unless you believe, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then notice in verse 55, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the third Passover in the Gospel of John. This is the final Passover. And it says that many Jews went up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. I think there's a significant note there that John is pointing to. What's significant about this is that what Jesus does at this Passover purifies his people forever. And now we get to chapter 12, and we have to take note that John's gospel is going to start to slow down. We begin the final week in Jesus' life. Half of the gospel of John is devoted to Jesus' last seven days on this earth. John has shown us that those who rejected Jesus chose place and nation rather than him. And now we will see the responses of those who followed Jesus. And not all who followed him responded positively. It's time for the Passover. Jesus has come to Bethany, and Jesus has come to the house of Simon the leper. We know this from Matthew chapter 26. And this thank you dinner is being thrown for Jesus because he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And who's there? Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are there, Jesus' friends. And we see this stark contrast between the religious leaders and the humble, committed followers of Jesus. We have seen the hardened, and now we will see the humble. At this dinner, Martha is serving. This is what Martha loved to do. She's in her element. Martha saw her brother raised from the dead, and so now she's serving Jesus. Hospitality to the Savior. Hospitality to the people of God is a wonderful way to respond to what Jesus has done for you. In the church, we often downplay the importance of hospitality, and yet it's vitally important for the life and ministry of the church, 
and for the sharing and spread of the gospel. And it's an example of our love and commitment to our Savior. Martha was grateful for Jesus and what he had done. And so she wants to show that gratitude. And she does it by serving him. And then at this dinner, we see another committed disciple. We see Lazarus. All that we're told is that he's reclining with Christ at the table. Lazarus is there as a witness. We see later on in verses 9 through 11, people are going to show up and they're going to see Lazarus alive and well. And this results in people believing in Jesus, which helps us see that those who are humble followers of Jesus are witnesses, witnesses to his grace and to his power. But also notice that Lazarus is near to Christ. He's sitting with him. He wants to be near to the Savior. He isn't serving like Martha. He isn't anointing Jesus' feet like Mary. We sometimes mistakenly think that a Christian life is all about busyness and serving. But sometimes the Christian life is best lived in sweet devotional time with Jesus. As Christians, we're called to long to be near to the Savior. It's possible to be serving and busy in ministry for the wrong reasons, to please people, to be noticed. And yet our serving should be driven by our communion with God. We should all have a desire to be near to Jesus. So we see Martha serving, we see Lazarus as a witness and desiring to be near to Jesus. And then there is this most standout example, and it's Mary. Mary takes a pound of ointment and pours it on the feet of Jesus and then wipes it with her hair. Not sure if you've thought about it, but that's a lot of oil, a lot of oil. At our home, we use essential oils for everything. Uh, for back pain, for headaches. We diffuse it in the air to purify the air. We diffuse it when we're sick. And here's the thing. All the directions for oils, I don't follow it all the time, they say only use a few drops. Drops. And the bottles that we have are three milliliter bottles. A couple of drops can fill the room with the scent of that oil. And so when it says here that Mary poured out a pound of this oil, which comes from the spikenard plant, that's a lot of oil. When I use oil for something and it gets on my hands, I have to like wash my hands 10 times just to get the oil off. Imagine the scene here. Mary pours out all this oil over Jesus's feet. And then she wipes it with her hair. What Mary does here is special and significant. She takes the lowliest place possible. Remember last week, we, we said she's constantly at the feet of Jesus. We see great humility in her act of devotion to Jesus. And what was probably shocking to some was that she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Women never unbound their hair in public in that day. 
It was viewed that a woman's hair was, was her glory. And so Mary takes her glory and she wipes Jesus's dirty feet. For us to understand the extravagance of her devotion, if you calculate the cost of oil in those days to our days, it would probably be something around $5,000 to $10,000. It was almost a year's wages in their day. And all of this was poured out on Jesus' dirty feet. Mary's bringing the best of what she has to give to Jesus because of her love for him. Extravagant, faithful giving flows out of the heart of the one who knows what Christ has done for him or her. We're only ever going to give generously when we love Christ so much for his great dying love for us. Something has happened here in the soul of Mary Because think about it, what she's doing is spontaneous. It doesn't seem like this is planned out. It doesn't seem like she was thinking, well, if I get rid of this, I'll be able to get by with this. It doesn't seem like she's planned all this out. But it seems like she's thinking, what is the best thing that I can bring to Jesus? What is the best thing that I could give him? I want that to be more true of my heart and my life. And if you're a Christian, I hope that you want that to be true of yourself. Doesn't mean that you have to have a lot of money. Remember the widows, the widow with two mites. Jesus watched her and he said to his disciples, look at all the people. See, they have all contributed out of their abundance. But she has put in everything she had. That's what Mary did. She gives Jesus her most treasured possession. So what's your most treasured possession? Think about it. What what do you treasure most? And the question for us is, would we give it up? Would we make it available to Jesus for him to use? This was a costly devotion to Jesus. What a blessing it is when our awareness of the priceless love of Christ has set us free from the things that we really don't need. Right? Because if we have Jesus, we have everything that we could ever want or need. Mary humbly gives her best to Jesus. How different is this from the evil scheming of those religious leaders? Think about the extravagant love that Mary shows her Savior. And then John records something interesting. Look at verse 3. Mary wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and John says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Why does John say that? It sounds like a Luke comment. Luke is the detail guy. 
right? John is like the pointing to spiritual significance guy. So that must mean he's pointing to something spiritually significant. No doubt every moment when John smelled that fragrance of spikenard, he probably thought back to this moment with Mary at Jesus's feet, wiping the oil with her hair. And probably even when he was writing this account, he remembered the smell filling the house. Mary's love for Christ caused an aroma of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this about those who believe in Jesus. To some, we are the aroma of life to life. And to others, we are the aroma of death to death. As you and I show real heartfelt devotion to Jesus in hospitality, in our desire to be near him, our closeness to him, in our generosity in giving back to him in the work of his kingdom, that causes a fragrance of Christ. And here's why. Because only the Lord Jesus can produce that in us. We are sinful people. We just don't act that way by nature. When the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of God's people to show them who Christ is and what he has done, they respond in these ways. And it's as if the aroma of Christ permeates everywhere they go. So we've seen the hardened, we've seen the humble, and then briefly the hypocrite. Mary shows her humble devotion to Jesus with this gift. And then we hear Judas speak up and say in chapter 12, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and give it to the poor? Now, this is the first time we have heard a word out of the mouth of Judas. Mary shows her gratitude, her respect, her love for Jesus. And then Judas shows up with his insincere mouth. We've heard Judas say one thing, and it's going to tell us all that we need to know about him. John describes him as Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. And every time Judas's name is mentioned in the Gospels, he's tagged as Judas, the one who was about to betray the Lord. Judas is always presented in the Gospels as a hypocrite. He is an example of someone playing the role of a Christian, but not really being one. He sounded impressive. He sounded very sensitive to the poor. Why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Right? He, he, he doesn't sound like a bad guy. I'm sure the disciples didn't really see him as a bad guy. They were probably like, mm-hmm, that's a really good point, Judas. But he was a hypocrite, a fake, a false disciple, a traitor, he skillfully hid what was really in his heart. Judas really didn't care for the poor. He's just like every other politician, right? If they want more votes, they take pictures with the poor. And Judas knew that this would be effective. He had no desire in caring for the poor. And he was the one who had the money box. He was the one that was entrusted with all the money as Jesus traveled and he took from it. He was a thief. He was a selfish, greedy materialist. 
and he hated the idea that Mary would waste anything on Jesus because that could have gone into his own pocket. One of the Puritans said this, Jesus cares so little about money that he gave the money box to his enemy. God's not interested in what you think about other people's money. Judas was really concerned with what Mary was doing with her money. God doesn't care of your opinion of other people's use of their money, but he cares about the way that you use your money. John writes, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas's love of money is what just drives him to betray Jesus. He's going to betray the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. He loved money that much. And so when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, every single one of us need to think very carefully about that. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Jesus loves rich people. Jesus loves poor people. Jesus died for rich people. Jesus died for poor people. But Jesus often warned against the dangers of loving money. And Judas is a warning to us all. Judas valued money above Jesus. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. He spent three years with Jesus. He was one of his disciples. He was one of those who came back to Jesus to say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He preached, he cast out demons, and yet he was possessed by Satan. He had all these privileges and did not believe. He rejected Jesus. And so we should be warned if there are signs of Judas in our own hearts. Coming to church without any devotion to Jesus. Seeking only business contacts or Social benefits. People see that you're a good person because you're coming to church. We need to ask ourselves, in my response to Christ, do I look like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or do I just play the part? One of the special parts of this passage is that Jesus comes to Mary's defense. Jesus loves Mary. We see this in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, Mary probably didn't know all that was going on and what she was doing, but Jesus says essentially that Mary has pre-anointed him for what he has come to do, to die for our sins. She has pre-anointed him for his burial. And then Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He says, look, you're always going to have the poor. You're always going to have opportunities to help the poor. 
but I'm not always going to be physically present with you. And he's drawing attention to himself and saying that I am the center. I am the center of the Christian faith. I am the center of the church. Our concerns for the problems of this world should never displace the worship of the Savior. The center of our focus must always be Christ crucified and risen. Martha was serving with all that she had. Mary was pouring out all that she had before Jesus in humble devotion, and Lazarus was trying to get as close as he could to Jesus. We've seen the varied responses to Jesus in this passage, and so now the question is, how are you responding to Jesus today? How are you responding to Jesus today? You can respond by rejecting him. You can see him as a threat to the life that you want to live, like the Pharisees, like Caiaphas. You can respond to him with a greater desire to commit yourself to him, to be near to him, to serve him, to show your love to him through generosity and giving to him and to his kingdom purposes. Or, like Judas, you can play the part. I don't know what's in your heart, and you don't know what's in mine. But may God give you and me a true longing to respond not with hardened hearts, to respond to him not as hypocrites, but in humility, in deep commitment to the one who has loved us and given himself for us. Because Jesus died for us, we should respond to him with belief and humble devotion.